Last week, we began looking at the solution to a problem that has perplexed many commentators down through the years. Uh, many commentators have pointed out that the description of this king in verse 36 just doesn't seem to fit the king of the north that's been described or the king of the south. And uh, so there are many people who have posited a gap of uh, 2,000 years uh, between verses 35 and 36, and they say this has to be something that's in the future because they can't see how it uh, really fits here. And yet uh, other people have said, well, I don't see how it can be in the future because there's so many aspects of this passage that just don't fit in the future. For example, in verse uh, 41, it speaks of Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon being a part of the fulfillment of that prophecy, and yet we know they no longer exist. Um, uh, Moab ceased, uh, the last of the Moabites ceased to exist in the 6th century, and the others uh, passed away before the 2nd century A.D. And uh, so there's uh, real problems with seeing it uh, in the future. Another uh, problem is that Egypt is said to have fabulous wealth that was pilfered in this passage, and yet ever since 36 B.C., Egypt has really been a very poor region of the world. There is no fabulous wealth to pilfer from there. And so commentators have been very, very puzzled. Uh, I believe that two authors have come up with the solution to this, uh, this puzzle here. Unfortunately, they've not written any commentaries, um, but they have um, pointed out that it doesn't fit the north or the south. Uh, it's really something that's within Israel. Uh, if you look at uh, verse 40, you'll see that the king here that is being described is somehow caught between the powers of the king of the south and the king of the north. Well, what's in between? It's Israel. And, and they further point out that geographically, verse 45 really doesn't fit any kind of region of other countries. This is geographically something that ties in uh, with the land of Israel. And even uh, dispensationalists and others who say this is in the future say, this Antichrist, who's from outside, must be having some palace within the land of Israel. And there's some other examples that uh, we could look at. And I really believe that all of the evidence fits with Herod the Great. We've seen how he fits in verses 36 uh, up through 39. And I'm going to try to demonstrate that he fits uh, in these verses as well. Let's begin with verse 40. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. Now, uh, procedurally, this is maybe a poor way to start, but I've got to start disagreeing already with the translation um, uh, in, in, in tying it in. But I should say, even before I try to show how a different translation works better, um, even with this translation, it fits Herod the Great. Uh, Herod was attacked by Cleopatra uh, a number of times. She tried to oust him, but she did it by getting Antony, who was the king of the south, uh, to go against him. Uh, usually Antony just ignored her, but on one occasion Herod the Great uh, murdered one of the people in, in Israel, one of the princes there, and uh, she managed to get him to take him to court. And uh, he was so convinced that he'd be tried and executed that he commanded his uncle to kill his wife should he not return because he didn't want anybody else to have her. That was the kind of person that Herod was. Uh, so there was at least a brief time in which the king of the south did attack Herod. But let me explain why the literal translation of this passage is much uh, preferable uh, to, to this one. The three words there 
uh, that uh, are used uh, shall attack him are represented by uh, three Hebrew words which literally would be translated shall push with him, shall push with him, together with him. And here's how the um, uh, one uh, major lexicon defines that Hebrew word im or with. It says with, fellowship and companionship with, together with, with the help of, jointly with another, close to or beside, friendly with, and when it's used with fight, occasionally against. Now this is not the word fight, uh, it is the word to push, and uh, the normal usage is for with. Now the theological word book of the Old Testament says that ordinarily that word will be a totally different form if it's against. It'll be ima instead of im, and it says this. This word means with, beside, by, among, accompanying, from among, or between. Im, the preposition, is om, the noun, expresses the concept of inclusiveness, togetherness, and company. And so translated literally, here's how it would go. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall make a push together with him. Now, if you take it that way, the whole passage really opens up because it's a description of the Actium War. And it's a beautiful summary, I think, of Plutarch's Life of Mark Antony. Now, some of you may not have read that in high school. You may have had a real deprived education. So I want to give you a little bit of background to this point so that you can see what had happened to this, uh, to this uh, time. When Julius Caesar died, Antony was uh, the designated heir to replace him. But the Senate sided with Octavian, uh, surprisingly, and they put him on the throne. He was uh, what later became Caesar Augustus. But the Senate was uh, something that was, uh, had too much power, and Octavian, fearful of their power, decided to throw in his lot with uh, Antony and another power broker by the name of Lepidus. And this was the period of time when Rome was ruled by a triumvirate, and uh, these triumvirs in 42 BC uh, crushed the opposition uh, that was uh, led by Brutus and Cassius. They were the Republican Party. That was at the Battle of Philippi. And after that, Antony went back to Egypt where he ruled. That was the part of uh, the Roman Empire that he was ruling over. And everything went quite well between the three of them until 34 BC when Antony decides he wants a little bit more of the pie. Uh, he alienates Octavius by sending back his sister. He had married uh, Octavius' sister. He sends him back and he invades Octavius' uh, land. <clears throat> with the help of Cleopatra and Herod, with a magnificent, well-trained army, he invades Syria. And that's the point at which this passage here picks up. And it's very uh, accurate because the, it's the king of the south who begins that war, not the king of the north. And so the literal translation, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall make a push together with him, in other words, together with Herod. Uh, they were jointly attacking up into uh, um, uh, Syria. And Octavian, or Caesar Augustus, fights back in the next phrase, and he invades Antony's territory. But I want you to notice the way he invades. I think this is rather remarkable. It says, uh, it completely leaves out the infantry. It says, the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships. 
if you read the histories, I read in Plutarch where, surprisingly, the infantry were never mobilized. They had a huge number of infantry on both sides. They were never mobilized. If you study the wars in that region, rather remarkable because the infantry were usually very key in those battles. That was not the case here. The, the things listed here, the chariots, the horsemen, and the ships were the only things involved uh, in that uh, particular battle. So again, a uh, very accurate description over 500 years before this happens. And it says, and he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. Uh, the countries that he went through and possessed were Africa, uh, Upper Cilicia, Paphlagonia, Thrace, Pontus, Galatia. There were a number of other provinces all the way from Illyria to uh, Armenia. Verse 41 goes on. It says, he shall also enter the glorious land, that's Israel, and many countries shall be overthrown. Now Herod, being the clever man and the manipulator that he was, anticipated this before he got into trouble, and he went to Caesar Augustus in the close of a commoner, and he says, you have uh, defeated me. He laid his cr crown down in front of Caesar, and Josephus describes this event. He says, please don't judge me by the fact that I was loyal to Antony, but judge me by the fact that I was loyal. And just as I was loyal to Antony, I will be a loyal subject to you. And apparently Josephus says it was a very moving speech. Caesar uh, put him back on the throne, gave him his crown back. And from this point on in this passage, Herod and Caesar are in, in concert working together. He starts off together with Antony. He now moves with Caesar. And uh, it goes on in um, uh, verse 41 saying, he shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. Now, as I mentioned last week, just the mention of these peoples ought to clue us in that this is not a prophecy concerning the future, because those peoples have long since been destroyed. Many people who are literalists on all of the rest of the passage say, well, this has to be figurative. It must be symbolic as some other peoples. But I believe there is a literal fulfillment. Again, in Plutarch, Pliny, Strabo, and Dio Cassius, you see a detailed, exact, precise uh, fulfillment of these prophecies. Uh, they talk about the remarkable way in which Edom, Moab, and Ammon, those three escaped from Caesar Augustus when all of the other countries were conquered. Very, very remarkable. Goes on, verse 42, He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Now, if you read the histories, again, this was very remarkable that he was able to get these treasures because Cleopatra tried to flee uh, with all the treasures, not successfully. Then she tried to destroy all of the treasures because she felt, if I'm going to be killed, I'm going to make sure I go down with my treasures. She didn't want Caesar Augustus to get those. But remarkably, he was able to intervene, uh, negotiate, talk with her in such a way that he was able to get all of the treasures that, were, that was there. Now, again, this is one of those key timing sequences that we cannot forget. Ever since that pillaging of Egypt, Egypt has been a squalid, poor area and continues to be. There aren't any wealth, there isn't any riches presently to be robbed. People think that this is about to be fulfilled in the future. It can't be because there are not the kind of wealth and riches that there were in the time of Herod. And so I don't think you can date it any later than the period of Herod. Verse 43 ends by saying, 
Also the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. Now to follow at his heels means that their conquest would follow shortly after Caesar Augustus leaves, right? It would be at his heels after he leaves. And that's exactly what we find. Cornelius Balbus had a remarkable victory over those two countries in the name of Caesar after Caesar had conquered uh, Egypt and after he had left uh, that region. And so verses 40 through 43 act as sort of a parenthesis explaining how it was that Herod the Great, who's the main subject from verse 36 on, how he got messed up with Antony at first and then with Caesar Augustus. And uh, that last phrase of verse 43, they shall follow uh, his heels, clues us into the fact that the king that is being mentioned here is a different king than... Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus has left. It's in his heels. It's after he has left that this goes on to be spoken of. And so he's returning to the main subject of Herod in verse 44. But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Now, isn't this exactly what Matthew 2 says happens with Herod? News from the east. Uh, it says in chapter 2, uh, the Magi say, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Very literally, it was news from the east that troubled him. Now later in that same chapter in Matthew 2, it says, then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Take a look at this text. It says exactly the same thing. Therefore, it was on account of that news, therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And so a very exact uh, fulfillment. Now, what about the news from the north? We have news from the east that was troubled. Was there any news from the north that troubled Herod at that exact period of time? Well, you look in the histories and you find, yes, from the north up in Rome, Rome is the center of the northern side of the kingdom, we have news that troubles Herod. It came from Antipas, who was residing. Antipas was his eldest son. Antipas was residing in Rome. He wrote a letter to his father Herod saying that his two brothers were conspiring to kill Herod. Now, it was false uh, information. I think he was uh, wanting to keep any other people from being able to inherit the throne. And the fact that he was away uh, kind of made him nervous, so he sent this. Josephus tells us as soon as he received that letter, Herod went into such a fury that he killed his two sons and he killed many, many other Jews that he thought might have lined up uh, with them. And so we've got news from the east, we've got news from the north uh, at the same period of time troubling Herod and as a result of that going out and murdering many people. And you can look in Josephus, uh, many references to the numbers of people and the precise people that uh, he did kill. And so the historical fulfillment, again, very precise. Verse 45, and he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. And I want you to notice the plural tense there. Uh, he had two campuses to his palace, uh, one in the temple area on the holy mountain and one in the upper city. And both of them were between the seas, between the Mediterranean and the, the Dead Sea. And again, I don't see how this could fit anywhere else in Rome or Egypt. 
where Antiochus Epiphanes, many people say, well, maybe it's Antiochus Epiphanes, we just don't know all the historical details. <clears throat> but Antiochus Epiphanes did not have any palace that meets uh, that topographical uh, reference point there. It really does not fit anything else except for within the land of Israel. And again, every detail fits Herod. The last phrase says, yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. Herod died of some very foul, uh, horrible uh, diseases uh, that are pretty disgusting to read in, in Josephus. And he had all kinds of physicians working on him. They tried all kinds of uh, uh, procedures, and none of it helped. And uh, it describes his death, and it was a rather, um, a rather bad way of dying. But at his death, Josephus says, even there, he, his evil was exposed. Um, he commanded his sister to put all of the nobles, all of the chief people of, uh, of Israel that he had locked up in the Hippodome, uh, to put them to death. And the reason that he gave was he did not want anybody rejoicing at his death. He wanted to have a grand funeral, and he needed mourners. And so it shows you the character of Herod uh, at the time of Christ's birth. Uh, it was a, a, a disastrous time. And yet this is phrased in a way that gives encouragement and hope to God's people. And I want to end by giving three applications that we can take home uh, from this passage. We've seen uh, down through this uh, chapter 11 that we have had many, many uh, applications that we can uh, take with us. First of all, God knows how to frustrate the conspiracies of men and of kingdoms. And I've not mentioned this. I've saved it till this time. Uh, because this passage didn't have quite as many applications. But you start in verse 4 and go all the way through verse 45, and you see over and over again that little word, but. Uh, they have these big plans that they're going to make, but God comes along, throws a, a monkey wrench into the works. Uh, Seventeen times that little word, but, uh, is put in between the plans of men, and it says, but, and then it describes some problem that came in the way of them fulfilling their plans. And even where that little word, but, does not occur, you see frustrations coming in. There's misplanning, there's unexpected adversity, there's the unpredictable that happens. Uh, for example, in verse 40, Herod, first of all, sides with Antony. Now, Plutarch says that was a w very wise choice because Antony was by far the, had by far the superior army and it looked like he was going to win hands down. And yet it turns out that Herod the Great picked the wrong side. Why? He didn't know the future. Uh, he did not know the future. And you know, down through history, there have been many attempts by tyrants to destroy the church, uh, to defeat God's purposes in history, and yet they have been frustrated. And uh, we ought not to be um, uh, thinking that the, uh, the, the opposition is omniscient, uh, you know, is omnipotent, is omnipresent. The way many people talk about the Illuminati and other uh, world organizations, you'd get the impression that their plans are going to happen, that they're invincible. They, they, they put fear into people's hearts. I've read some of these books, you know, on conspiracies. By the time you're finished reading them, you're so depressed, uh, you wonder, you know, why you should even read a book like that. Because there's nothing we can do about it anyway, why should we be knowledgeable about it? And yet, uh, the scriptures indicate God has a habit of making these people feel very small. They're trying to play God, and yet they're not succeeding. 1 Corinthians 1.19 says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. And I think we can praise the Lord. He's a God who frustrates. He's a, he's a God who frustrates the wicked. 
Psalm 146 verse 9 says, The Lord frustrates the ways of the wicked. One great example, and there's many examples in Scripture, but one great example, I think, is the conspiracy of Absalom against David. It says in 2 Samuel 17 verse 14, Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The advice of Hushai the Archite is better than that of Ahithophel. For the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. So don't give the enemy too much credit, okay? Don't deify the enemy. Uh, they are limited and God can frustrate their plans. And I think we need to start praising the Lord and thanking him for the 17 buts that occur in this chapter. Okay, second application that we can take home with us. When we see one evil nation you know, getting its just dues, then we see it just being replaced by another evil nation. The nation that judged it seems to be just as evil. We may get the impression that God doesn't know what he's doing or that God doesn't care about us or maybe that God really isn't doing anything at all. And yet the lessons of this chapter is that God judges nations in history and the very fact that one nation uh, comes against another nation is many times used by God to advance his purposes and to humble the pride of man. When things get worse and worse and a nation becomes more and more tyrannical, we might think things are out of control and God says, no, it is precisely because that nation needed judgment that I have brought that. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is, that's present tense, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. See, these tough times are God's judgments on nations. And if you read Romans chapter 1, very carefully, I think you'll be convinced we're not waiting for judgment in America. We are facing judgment right now. God's wrath has already been poured out because you see all of the abominations. You see how things are getting worse and worse and the acceleration is going so bad. It is God giving us up to our own desires. It is his wrath being revealed right now against nations. You see, God does not tolerate rebellion. When rebellion comes, this kind of wrath uh, happens. And if God did not hate sin, uh, many times people think, well, God must not care about sin when they see things like that. No, it's because God cares that he allows the bitter fruits of sin to be felt by those people. The wrath of God is revealed. Thirdly, Israel is called the glorious land, or literally the beautiful land in verse 41, not because it was so beautiful in topography, now, I think there's a beauty about Israel, but compared to some of the surrounding nations, I don't think uh, that it was really beautiful in, in the physical sense. I think it was the spiritual beauty that God ascribed to Israel because of the glorious presence of his spirit within that land. If you look at verse 45, it speaks there also of the glorious holy mountain. Uh, the closer to the presence of God that you got, the more holy it was described, the more glorious it was described. And so Israel is the glorious land, the holy land. Not now. You shouldn't call it the holy land now. Revelation calls it Sodom and Egypt. doesn't call it the holy land uh, because God's presence is not there. But it speaks of it being the holy land in the Old Testament and the glorious land because God's presence resided there. And within all of Israel, there was one city that was called the holy city, why? Because that was the, the city of God's presence. And within all of the hills and the mountains of Jerusalem, there was one mountain that was the holy mountain, the glorious mountain, because it was the mountain of God's presence. And with the tent, within the temple, you see the same. 
There was the outer court. There was the, uh, the holy place. There was the holy of holies. The closer to God's presence you came, the more holy, the more glorious it was described. And I think the application here for a country, for a church, for our individual lives is so obvious. If we do not have the presence of God within our lives, no matter how beautiful we may be outwardly, we are not beautiful, we are not glorious in God's sight. And yet it does not matter about our outward disposition. If God's presence is there, we can be glorious. You know, when the presence of the Holy Spirit is absent from a church, it doesn't matter how glorious the organ music is. It doesn't matter how beautiful the building is. It doesn't matter how wonderful your programs. It is not glorious in God's sight because it is the presence of God's Holy Spirit that counts. If you are not indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, you are not beautiful in God's sight. All he can see is the ugliness of your sin. If you are not indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, you will face the judgments and the wrath of God. And what you need to do is you need to look to the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom this whole prophecy is going. You know, in chapter 12, he begins to notice a difference. With the birth of Christ, Michael the archangel stands up. And Michael the archangel begins to fight on behalf of the remnant of his people. And God will cause all things to work together for your good only if you are related to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have cast your sins upon him and you have taken his righteousness for yourself and clothed in his beauty, indwelt by the beauty of his Holy Spirit, you will be able to go out and with confidence face any circumstance and know all things work together for my good. And it's my prayer that that can be the testimony of each one of you here this morning. Amen. Let's pray.